I'm tempted to just bring my mood into television on, in, in, onto radio this evening because I'm actually quite peeved if, if, if that word is ever quite appropriate for radio. We prepare for a whole week. A whole week we have people lined up. But we are kept on the fence. We might have the interview. We might not have the interview. But we prepare. And this time yes, on Saturday we had a full show. Half of yesterday we had a full show. And then the person who we've been waiting for for the whole week, three months actually, decides that she's available. So we drop everybody else for her. And that is made abundantly clear to all the parties concerned. What do we get? Two hours before we go on air, in fact, less than an hour before we go on air, we get notification that this person who we've squeezed into the program because we needed her and have been needing her because she is a story that is worth having as a first story on a show like this at 8 p.m. in the evenings, for whatever reason, is not available. Frankly speaking, I'm not too surprised, but I am disappointed. I am disappointed because we prepared we prepare notes on this. We have to and from our producer and I. You go through not just the internet, but you go through proper documentation. You want to put material to the interviewee that is proper for his or her engagement. In this instance, it would have been the Speaker of the National Assembly. They called us to say she's ready. And now she's not ready for whatever reason. So I'm not impressed, not in the least. It doesn't work that way. If ever I had an appointment with her, I would never just drop her an hour before, more especially when such an appointment was the public appointment of the kind where she and I would be engaging with people in the audience because people prepare. I sent out a, a tweet saying that I would be in conversation with the chap with with the speaker of the national assembly this is not some child's play conversation that we were about to have we were about to have a proper conversation with the third most powerful office in the country behind that of the president the deputy president she is that person in the absence of those two persons that is president ramaphosa and deputy president mabuza the conversation we typically would have as to who the head of state is even in an interim capacity it would be mamungagula now she's not available and we don't have lucid reasons as to why not it's not a game. It's not a game. I'm disappointed by that. I really am. And if you are in her presence, let her know how I feel. And hopefully she can come back and give us an appointment and tell us why she wouldn't have at least the sense of just allowing us to engage her. With such short notice, I can't and I haven't been given a reason that I can work with. So I'm not going to assume anything. And I know it's election season. Things happen at the 11th hour. At least prepare us for that. Confirm your availability with that being a caveat in all of this. It hasn't happened. Now, listeners who had anticipated this conversation, you at home are left hanging. I, who had prepared for this together with my producer, are left hanging, which is worse. It becomes disrespectful then to those persons who we had to drop at the 11th hour, to whom we offered an explanation, and they quite appropriately, quite professionally, and very kindly agreed to stand themselves down in the presence of the high office that we had anticipated. What high office in its absence doesn't exist? I'm sorry to start like this, but it is appropriate that sometimes every now and then we just let our minds be known exactly how difficult it is to prepare for broadcast with the limited time frames that we already have and the many stories that we could otherwise cover but we don't cover simply because we have to rationalize and prioritize and also give deference, that word deliberately used, deference to certain offices. 
it would be nice if such deference was given to us as well because it's not just us who are here in studio it's more the people who are actually the patrons of this the public who engage us on these issues they are the most affected they are the ones who want to engage with the office bearers their leaders the people who they elect into these spaces anyway good evening tessa how are you tessa dooms thank you so much for joining us independent political analyst um, I even forget the things that I know now. I'm so sorry about this. But Tessa, thank you so much for honouring this appointment so late in the day as it is. Hi, Sengezo. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Well, let, let's talk about local government elections coming through now with less than a week, essentially, because by this time most of the country would have made up their minds, although at this stage most of the country, by most assessments, have not made up their minds. What is it ultimately a symptom of the fact that many South Africans at this stage, so close to the 1st of November, still don't really know where their vote is going to go? I think in some ways it's both a good thing and a bad thing. I think um, four years ago, or five years ago, ten years ago, um, in previous local government elections, um, there would be two things that we would almost know for certain is that um, people would be um, voting along um, party lines and their party allegiances for the national elections would be um, a way that would guide them for the local um, government elections. And so there'd be less chatter really about um, who we would be voting for, especially in terms of who the candidates are and um, what the issues are, because people would have decided on their votes, those who were going to vote. The other thing we would know is that most people weren't going to vote in local government elections. We know that um, the turnout for local government elections has historically been very low. And so um, a lot of people would not be paying attention to local government elections Mm -hmm. at the level that we see right now. And so the fact that we're still having so much chatter about um, local government elections in social media spaces, the fact that um, in communities, in homes, in households, over dinner tables, Mm. we're we're still having these conversations and people are starting to ask questions like, who are the candidates in my my ward? Mm. Who was the previous ward councillor? How well did they do before? What are the issues? Um, I think about um, the township I grew up in, Eldorado Park, who in the last two years we've seen a surge of political activity and energy that I haven't experienced Mm -hmm. in all the time that I lived in in Eldorado Park. And so there's definitely a political awakening around these local government elections. Um, I think even the by-elections that have happened between um, the last five years and now, there's been um, some kind of energy that's been around who we're voting for directly in our wards, and that's a very, very good thing. It's a bad thing as well because people are now starting to realize how little they know about the local government space, how little we understand about how voting takes place, the difference between the ward versus the um, proportional representative system, how the mayor gets elected, who's going to be on the ballot. Um, You know, people realize they don't know as much about that as they need to. And more importantly, when we look at the posters that are around our neighborhoods, so few of them are about the local candidate in your community. And so many of them have got national leaders on those boards, again, trying to push us towards parties rather than towards the people who we need to hold accountable. And I think that people are starting to realize that they don't have enough information to make the kind of decisions they need to next week, Monday. Let's talk about the fact that in many respects it's a good and a bad thing that we find ourselves where we are. Ultimately, would you not say in the final analysis it is a good thing? At least we know that we don't know, and we are, because in this situation, trying to engage 
that question of local government that much more, that level of engagement with our public office bearers is that much more alive now. And in many respects, I suppose, we have social media to thank because how information circulates in that space allows us to engage the topics a little more than perhaps we would in the traditional spaces absent social media and which is more our engagement of social media doesn't necessarily feel like the typical research one would have to undertake in times gone by insofar as it relates to local government elections. Certainly social media has played a significant role in terms of shaping public discourse around elections, generally the electoral system, and people's understanding and a space where we can talk to each other about the filling in the gaps in our knowledge. But I would say that what we're seeing um, in our community is, is about more than social media, I think, by far. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, a combination of understanding just how dire situations are in our communities um, is, is, is a big proponent of what's going on in terms of seeking political solutions, seeking participation um, that is meaningful. Um, and I think um, things like load shedding, water cuts are no longer just something of, you know, the rural village in Tata. Mm. It's now something that's pervasive in even the sentence of the world. And so there is this growing discontent um, within communities that's causing people to seek out solutions. And I always point us to um, the 2019 election. The 2019 election was significant um, and will be significant for these elections um, predominantly because that proliferation of new small parties that we had. We had 48 parties on the national ballot. That is extraordinarily high. The IEC has registered over two or 300 parties in the country. Um, we just had an explosion of parties, explosion of little parties. It might um, be the reason why the DA seems to be so anxious about small parties all of a sudden. But we've had this explosion of small parties, and even those parties in the national election in 2019 that did not get a seat in Parliament, they made up for half a million votes scattered between those little parties. And oh. so if you take that to the local government level, those little parties can have a huge impact at the ward level. They can convert what didn't result in much impact at a national level into impact on a local level, the ability to run to, to represent a ward. The, the ability to sit in a ward um, council, the ability to sit in the municipality um, as, as representatives. And I think that's game-changing. I think communities are saying, we want to take our politics back. We want politics that is close to us, politics that's accountable, politics that has a name and a face, and we're not only lured by the big brand anymore. And I think we're going to see the results of that um, in these local government elections, but it's going to be the continuing changing face of our politics is the emergence of small parties not for their own sake and because we want a fragmented um, democracy, but it's a cry that people are having that says we want a different kind of politics and we're no longer dependent on the big parties for our political choices. We are in conversation with Ms. Tessa Dooms, independent political analyst for the purposes of this conversation, but she is a sociologist and academic, and she is very passionate about youth affairs. I'm sure you can tell in her voice. 2022 is the time. Let's go to calls, please. Johannesburg 714-2006. We are talking with less than a week to go before local government elections, with many people still at sea, as it were, as it relates to who they will actually be endorsing. We are trying to get to grips with what does this 
actually mean for the state of our democracy, local government and our politics at large, and more importantly, how things might turn out for a surprise or two in a week from now. Let's go to our first-time caller, please. Good evening to you this evening from Johannesburg. Lizzie. Lizzie, good day. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Thank you for the ovation. So, Geza, I live in an old age home. I am re- was have been registered at Glen Hazel Primary School in, Sandring, in, in, in Johannesburg since 2005. For the last four years, the IEC has been coming to the home where I live to vote for us. This year, I applied for a special vote for, to come here, and they've sent me a message to say that my special vote is at 48 Long Avenue, Glen Hazel, which is in Glen Hazel Primary School, to which I cannot get. Now, how did it work the last time, and have you done anything different this time around? I'm asking well, these questions because I'm trying to, one, develop a podcast that we can actually engage to the powers that be at IEC. So what is said here is important. Okay, in, in the previous time, the, um, I think it was the DA arranged for them to come here to register. There were members, representatives from all the parties, and they checked and they, they sorted out who was, who was where. We had a young woman who was registering, was contacting the IEC for everyone who needed a special vote here. And she sent my application through with others. And I have an SMS in my hand that says, vote at 48 Long Avenue, Glen Hazel, when I'm at 85 George Avenue, Sandringham. Okay, this and is... I phoned the, the IEC and they said, well, it's tough, we can't do anything about it. This is what I propose to do, and this is the best I can in the circumstances. I we will get through to the chief of the IEC, and of course I'm going to start my approach to Saima Mabola, obviously, because he's the most accountable. Well, officer. I tried to get him, but I was told he was too busy. I accept, Lizzie. We have a way of trying to get through I, to I these I know persons. you have much more clout than I. Well, I wouldn't I, use the I'm, word clout. I'm, I'm old and, and no longer capable of what I used to be able to do. Lizzie, the best I can do is this. We will take your details. We will do our damnedest to follow up with the hope that by this time tomorrow we can offer some clarity, not just for you, but of course to many who might I'm be in a sure similar many position to I must confess that I've been wavering because I really do not know who to trust in this election. Very well, that's something else, but let's get the IEC matter out of the way first. I think that's the most important for your sake. Okay. And of course, you want in me to week, give the Sechem ID number and all the rest of it? Lesecho will talk to you privately, okay. please. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Much appreciated. Let's go to Cape Town. Mike, good evening. Yeah, good evening, Sogeza. First of all, I'm, I'm, I want to comment on, on the election, but I was going to say, don't take it too hard. Unfortunately, our speaker is the ex-speaker of Minister of Defence. You know, she used Air Force jets for her personal use, imported drugs from Cuba. And also, you know, if you look at the amount of people in the ANC that have let us down, not just on radio shows and TV, but in Parliament, Don Vulia Mokinyana, Bakabedi Glumini, Ayanda Glodlo, uh, the uh, Faith of Mofembi, these people all never pitched up for Parliament, never mind radio shows. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's the ANC arrogance that we're dealing with. And, uh, and I am disappointed, I have to say, but I'm not surprised. I want to say in terms of the, uh, the upcoming uh, municipal elections, I, I'm kind of involved. I'm involved in one of the, the teams, and uh, I'm a voting captain. And I still have absolutely no idea where it's going to go. But I know one thing, and that is that if we, all these independents are going to be extremely bad news. I think I, even if the ANC or, or the 
uh, as long as we have strong parties. But if we go into massive coalitions all over the country, I think that, I think really it would be the worst outcome for our country. We need strong parties. Obviously, I'm really hoping the DA will come out strong. We've, it's proved itself in Cape Town and the Western Cape. But equally, I also hope that if the ANC wins, I want it to win strongly because if they go into a coalition with the EFF, uh, frankly, we do, because it'll just be a fight between who gets the money and not about uh, looking after the voters. Because sadly, our system doesn't represent the voters. It represents those in Parliament elected within on the list system. And, and uh, although it's a municipal election, I understand that. And I understand that people vote for the candidate in this particular case. But unfortunately, people end up voting for the party and not the best man for the job. And that's probably where I want to take it. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, it sounds sure. like you do have a fever there, man. Get well. Tesla. We, we, we precisely in the space now where we have to look beyond the party, perhaps, and perhaps some of the comments that you've made earlier on are indicative of the fact that it's not just the party that is now holding sway or is decisive in who we vote for. Mike touches on that, the value of independence. What have you as an opinion on independence? The fact that they split the vote is one concession, certainly that um, John Steenhazen is lamenting and harping on about as to try and sway everybody else towards the DA. The value, can we just quickly spend some time to engage the value of independent candidates and to the extent that they do make it into the councils into which we will be voting them for, the nature of the power that they will actually be in a position to exercise, given the fact that they only go there on their own. They don't have a caucus, if you will. Yeah, um, I think that what we need to understand about our politics generally, and this is not only local government elections, even in parliament, is that every parliamentarian, every legislator, every person who ends up in council is an individual as well. They're not just a, you know, an offshoot of their party in some sort of dormant, um, objective way. And that part of the politics of a council, of a legislature, of a, of a parliament, is people being able to engage each other, to caucus, as you say, and to persuade each other. <laughs> And at local government election, uh, election level, this is even more important than anything else. Because if you think about a ward councillor, mm-hmm. a ward councillor, um, ideally, and I know this is not um, legally the case that it's required, but ideally you want a ward councillor living in their ward, right? Who then has access to the people who live in that ward, those people have access to them, and is able to account for what happens in that ward knows where the water is broken, knows where the roads have bottles, knows where the indigent people in the community live, and is able to take those issues into that space where power resides, find people who have a common agenda to themselves, and lobby for the right decisions to be made. And that happens as much at an individual level as it does on a party level. When we get persuaded by the idea that the party is supreme because you know, when somebody belongs to a party, they're going to vote with the party no matter what. We have taken away um, the power of the citizen, and we've given it to the party. We said that the party and what happens at the Tuli House or what happens at the DA's headquarters or the EFF's Mandela, Winnie Mandela House, that is where power lies. And I think that is where the problem is. We must give the citizens back their power. We must give the voters back their power. And in, in a local government election, the power of being able to engage the ward councillor is a strong power. It's the power of accountability. 
And so that ward councillor mustn't be able to tell me if I say this is what the issues are. No, I'm first going to consult with my party. No, mm. that's not what the ward councillor's response needs to be. And in the same way, when we talk about party coalitions and, you know, splitting votes, it's not splitting votes. It's the will of the voter. If the, vote, if the voter tells you that these are the group of people who need to make decisions, if it's difficult, we're sorry. But you asked for this. You asked for these responsibilities. You asked to go and represent the people you could persuade to allow you to represent them. You cannot then go there and say, not enough of you showed up. What about the people who did show up for you and the people who have given you that vote? And so it's disingenuous to say that coalitions are difficult and therefore we should avoid them. What we must say is that regardless of how the chips fall, whatever the voters decide, we will be smart enough, mature enough, um, reasonable enough to make what the voters yeah. give us work. Here's something, though, which remains nonetheless a reality, and I accept everything that you do say. It nonetheless remains a reality for that deliberately using this word, for that individual who's on a particular ticket through a particular party, that individual is almost hamstrung to first go and consult the party because precisely he or she is there by sponsor of the party. And if he or she strays, which has become political practice, whether or not it is legal practice is something quite else. The political practice is you've got to stay within the tram lines, and if you stray, you're out. That's the reality that many of these individuals who are there ultimately to represent us are faced with. How then do they straddle these tram lines? You know, the way to straddle it is to leverage the voter and leverage a real constituency. What every politician, regardless of the, the level at which they are entering politics, needs to do and remember is that their constituency is their greatest form of power. Not only their power um, over the citizen or for the citizen, but their power in negotiating within their parties, within the caucuses, within those um, you know, um, municipalities and, and councils. If you have the voter on your side and the electorate on your side, especially at local government ele- level, then you don't need the party because at the local government level, if the person who I voted for, regardless of their party, particularly the ward councillor, the PR is, is slightly different, but if that ward councillor gets taken and removed because of the party, that becomes a by-election. That position becomes vacant. And that person could contest on their own if they really believe they have the interest of the community at heart and the community will support them. Yeah. Again, it empowers the, the citizen. It empowers the voter to say, it's me, the, the constituency, that gives you power, not the party. I'm going to and appeal. I think yeah. we, we, there are many lessons to learn from this local government election scenario that we must remember is going to be imported into the provincial and national um, level mm. because of that Electoral um, Act um, victory at the Concord that says we're going to have independent candidates now at the national provincial level, and so we must learn the lessons here. Yeah, sure, you're right, and, and, and you are appealing, if you like, to the higher ethic, if I can call it that. But a way of keeping as a deterrent to that higher ethic to which you refer is what we have seen in the run-up to these very elections. How many times have you heard a councillor candidate has been shot dead? Because of all these issues that are political in nature, party-based politics in most instances, if not in all instances. And we must, number one, we must know of these instances. 
they must be reported much more widely and robustly than they are being reported. Number two, we must know um, who the parties are that are involved in these kinds of things, because um, knowing the identity of the person who has died and knowing how that case evolves is something that the public needs to understand and know um, so that we have information. We need that information so that we can hold parties accountable. And as voters and as the electorate and as citizens, we must require a higher moral and ethical standard from the people and the parties that we vote for. And so if we hear that there was this situation that led to the murder of a councillor or councillor candidate, and the police are able to determine that this was about X party or Y's party, political factional battles or a way of them eliminating an opposition. Surely as a society, our moral response to that must be, mm. if you can um, allow murder, we cannot give you our vote. So I, 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 I don't see that for me as a legitimate reason to just allow party candidates to do as they please. Um, yes, your life is, is being put in danger, but you also, um, you also put yourself in a situation with a party or with individuals that we need to know about. We need to understand those dynamics so that we can make choices. Let's take a couple of voice notes that have come through in the conversation with Ms. Tessa Dooms, political analyst, sociologist, and an advocate strongly at that at the, Nath- at the National Commission presidential commission on youth matters she is on for another four or so minutes let's take a couple of voice notes after which we will have her final contributions uh, i'm very sorry to the team uh, i know the work that you put in i know that i'm a conscious south african because i listen to sfm these municipal elections i have never cared about in my 30 years on earth but thanks to the engagements that sfm has had I realize how important these elections are. So, Enzo, you do not uh, do radio for the sake of just the leadership of the country. You do a radio for the 50-plus million people of South Africans who do SAFM are making South Africa a better place to be at. Do not be dismayed. We take her failure to show up as a sign of what we can expect from the ANC and Josie SAFM. Uh, good evening, brother Songes. As for me, I don't see any difference. All these political parties which have been formed are just as good as the NC because most of these politicians come from the NC. They were groomed by the NC. The Bantu Olomisas, the Malemas. You know, most of them, all I, I can say all of them that are coming from NC. So I don't see any difference. It's just an extension of ANC Anonymous. Uh, good evening, Shagasi. Uh, it's been a while uh, with your guest as well. Look, mine is this. I am happy that finally uh, we are going the, the, the community-based politics route with these independent candidates coming from the community not aligned to any political party because in the past we had a problem where if somebody is part of an autonomous structure 
a decision is taken in Lutuli House. The person is on the ground. He has no choice but to abide by it. Because when they join, they join the, the, that particular uh, government, in fact, that particular political party with the intention to serve it, not the people. It's Honorable Monareng in Kailicha. Okay, those are the voice notes. Do you want to reply before we go to two calls in Mokopane and Coxstad? Very quickly, Miss Tessa Dooms. Yeah, I'm. I'm just really glad that people are thinking about these things deeply, and that um, the kind of discourse is encouraging people to vote. Um, and I, I hope that we get past the point where we see all political parties through the lens of the ANC. Not because I think your caller is wrong. I think that that we have a serious problem in the country of um, political offshoots or even new political parties um, trying to fashion themselves after the ANC. So you get everybody's trying to be a version of the ANC in terms of the way they structure themselves, the way they posture, all sorts of things. And I, I do think that, that um, that's part of our problem, is that we're, we're going to continue replicating until we start seeing different um, kinds of politics. And I, I think I've seen some versions of that, not only with independent candidates, but even with some of the small new parties that are trying out different models of politics, and I think that's an encouraging thing. Certainly is. Let's take a couple of calls. Let's go to Selo in Mokopane very briefly, please, and Cyril in Coxstead. And I'm saying these things simply because we are running out of time. Selo in Cyril. Um, thanks for taking my call, Sanders. Look, you know, I think what take um, for me... I, I think it will be the EFF. Um, I think most most of the people in that they are afraid of changes, um, uh, and then change that they don't know. So I think if we can move away from the fear that we don't know, the better. The ANC has been promising people's jobs, has been promising people's electricity, and so forth on the well. Not that they did not do those things, but they could do much better. But it's been long time ANC singing the same song for 27 years from as well. So for me, I think the EFF, I just wish EFF can take many municipalities in this country and then see how they're going to run um, this municipality. Other than this ANC that just keep on repeating themselves as if they're you know, it's just tiring so that we can't talk about the ANC, we talk about the loss of the money that has been stolen from the from the people. So that's all. Fantastic. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you so much, Cyril. Cyril in Cox, that final caller for this segment. Cyril? Thank you for taking my call. Mm. A very uh, informative thing. Uh, uh, can you just ask a political uh, analysis there? What is the purpose of the traditional leaders on local government and the council on local government? Because to me, it seems to me there's a, a, a overlapping of a system, what's a nice system and uh, customary system or whatever you call it. But what is her, uh, her uh, how can she educate us? Because a lot of money is going to be paid out for the local because the questions are also coming up. Thank you for taking my call. That's a very worthy conversation on its own to have, but we certainly can sort of nibble on that with you, Tessa. What do you think, or what is, in fact, the role of traditional leadership in local government? Such an important question, um, not only because of the money that we spend, but um, I think that local traditional leaders have had two uh, main roles. One is 
they are able to mobilize the community, engage with the community in ways that politicians often cannot because they have the buy-in of a community. And what they have been used that to do secondarily is become a bridge between the community and the politician. So you will see there's a culture in South Africa of politicians approaching a chief um, or a traditional leader as a proxy for approaching the people in that village mm-hmm. and not engaging the people themselves. So they've become political brokers in many senses in, in our politics. And we must ask questions about what does a chief do that a ward councillor can't do? What does a ward councillor do that a chief cannot do? If we uh, um, accept that a chief or a, politic- or a traditional leader is there to see to the needs of that community, is there to ensure that that community has a voice, that community um, has their, their, their grievances heard by the, the chieftaincy, then why would that not be a suitable place for either collaboration with the political head, or we must ask ourselves the question, should those people have a more political role in terms of their ability to represent? How seriously we do, we, do we take um, the traditional leadership, and should they be more active in terms of their political representation of people rather than just be political brokers? Final I think it's a question. fascinating conversation. It is very much, and I'm even tempted to have this as a conversation on its own tomorrow at 21 hours on part of the African narrative conversation that we usually have on Tuesdays. But precisely that question and your response, I mean, I wasn't really trying to go there, but I think it is important, and perhaps my own unwillingness has been shown to be short in this context. We saw this political brokering from a traditional leader over the course of the weekend, Kaya, him receiving, at least in his words, uh, Mercedes-Benz ML over and above, um, a bull or a cow, as the case may be, from the EFF. The leader of the EFF was there in person in the Transkei. What what does that all mean? And I'm especially interested in the appropriateness of that aesthetic. You know, it it does become tricky because what happens in that context is if the leader, um, if a traditional leader, and, and I would say more local than um, the king because the king has a slightly broader reach than just one community or one ward. But it does become tricky if... Um, the leader of the traditional leader supports one party, but that party does not win. That says something about that traditional leader's power. It, it challenges their power, and that could um, lead to bad community relations. So it does put a lot of pressure on the people who live in that area about how they are going to manage their social relationships um, with in that community amongst each other and with their leaders. And so I, I think there is something that is morally problematic with it because of the kind of um, unspoken pressure it puts on voters. Okay, that's one aspect. I'm engaging, finally, I, I know I, sh- I should have gotten this out of the way much earlier, the appropriateness of... I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> if you're asking me about the appropriateness of, of what happened. And, and, and more than it, then, let's call it inappropriate. What are the risks that attend, then, that inappropriateness? What does society lose because of what we saw? Um, I mean, does it not... For, for, forget it was Malema and the, the, the current King Buelakaya Dalingyebu. Mm. What if it was 
another political party, let's say the Freedom Front, coming through with whatever it would come through in a largely African community, would our response as Africans be any different because it is now these two players involved? Would our response equally not in one way or the other remind us of questions of how governance and the land questions in the eighteen eight in the eighteen hundreds was done, the power political broking of the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm beyond this gesture itself. I'm just looking at South Africa's history and how those political office bearers or power bearers have a way into the communities through the kings at an exchange for the benefit of the one who sits at the top of that structure or community. I mean, a few people um, commented on social media this weekend um, very slyly um, that this kind of is a throwback to the colonial um, machinations that came around the creation of kingships and tribes and so forth. And um, I, I think that that's what you're, you're pointing to. What's important for us is that um, we need to recognize that this is not an aberration. This is actually a part of our political culture. And it's a part that we must um, pay attention to. I think it's a part that we must uproot in many ways, because what it does is it takes away some of the agency of the individual voter in those contexts. Um, and if, if you spend any time in rural um, South Africa, especially where there's strong traditional leadership that is well-respected, those social ties are meaningful to people. They result in real ways in which it can impact on their lives. And I think it's worth us um, wanting those people to have the freedom of their vote, not affect the social relations and even economic relations of their lives. Fantastic. That's the sort of thinking I wanted to engage. Thank you so much. So you've given me a couple of pointers, perhaps, to prepare the conversation. Hopefully we can have tomorrow on traditional leadership and local government in this country and whether or not they might not be obsolete, given the fact that we are where we are with our political system. But for your thoughts and everything else, especially with a short notice that you did not enjoy, Tessa, thank you very, very much. My pleasure. 2040.